0: Morning, Cedar Mill. Uh, this is uh, the fourth Advent uh, Sunday of Advent. We're celebrating. My name is John Johnson, one of the congregants here, and I'm going to bring together some of the things we've covered these last few weeks. We've focused around the, the the question, "Why Jesus came?" Finding in scriptures explicit statements in which Jesus said, "I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I've come to declare the truth." And as Ashley brought out last week, Jesus uh, we understand, especially when we read in the book of first John, tells us he, have, he has come to destroy the works of the evil one. On this fourth Sunday of Advent, I'd like to look at another passage. It's not as explicit as the others, but it does tell us why Jesus came. It's a it's a record here in Matthew chapter one, verses one to seventeen. And I want you to bear with me a moment as I read this text that begins with these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashan, Nashan the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Are you still with me? It continues. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. All right, hang in, just one more section. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, Shelteel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihad, Abihad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matin, Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Now, yes, it is a strange way to begin the New Testament, open the book of Matthew. Beginning a sermon with a two-minute reading of lineages is tantamount to, I suppose, homiletical suicide. On the surface, it has all the fascination of government tax code. Why begin this way, and what does it mean, and what is Matthew saying? And why is it really we should pay attention? Maybe we could say it was just the way of the writer Matthew, who was a tax collector, let's assume, who was fascinated with records. Which, if, the, if this was the case, Matthew would have difficulty, would have had great difficulty, especially in today's age, of being published. Were this book sent as a proposal, this, I imagine, would be the response Dear Matthew, overall, the story you write has suspense, has some mystery, has a lot of good characterization. But some improvements need to be made, especially with the introduction. You may want to consider deleting it. The easiest decision a reader can make is to stop reading, and readers will stop reading your book after the second or third verse. Those who read in today's culture, and there are not many who read in today's culture, have the attention span of a net. Did you not learn anything from the book of Numbers as well as Chronicles? And by the way, those books don't sell. Have you noticed, in fact, when you open a Bible, typically a Bible that has uh, been opened and used will find Chronicles and Numbers are the clean pages of the book. Genealogies are nice for people who are into reading loan title reports or prefer to use their weekends doing archival research rather than watching the timbers. But that's a really small market. Do we need to know really who fathered who? And here you must be more creative. The net language is hopelessly redundant. 27 times the father of. Please try to use a thesaurus. All the best in your new venture, your friends at IVP. But here's how I imagine Matthew would reply. Thanks for your advice. But I'm not really trying to please the market. It's not about establishing a national platform and determine what sells, but what God's called me to write. And by the way, I actually think this is an appropriate, if not necessary, introduction because it explains Christmas, which most people have no clue. Just look at the market for inflatable snowmen. All the best, Matthew. Now, maybe Matthew started it because he's into lists, or maybe, maybe he began this because he's connecting the words with the Old Testament. If you go to Genesis 1 and you go to Matthew 1, they both been, begin with these words, the book of Genesis. So maybe Matthew begins here to serve notice that he's now describing a new world that's been created with the coming of the Messiah. A new world to, in a sense, heal the broken one. But I want to throw this out, that more likely Matthew begins with the genealogy, with the genealogy to build a fundamental foundational case that Jesus came in the flesh. He came into our earthly story with the DNA that goes back to the beginning uh, of Israel. But why does this matter, really? So what does this have to do with us? What is it about the incarnation we need to understand, especially this time of year? Well, let me give you four reasons. First of all, Christ has come in the flesh, and Matthew is underscoring this to tell us he came to connect with humanity. He came to unite us with God. Unlike Roman pagan gods that separated themselves from flesh and blood and kept their distance in some mythic role, Jesus entered into our story, Matthew is telling us, in the flesh, in the here and now, rather than conduct affairs remotely. He didn't get in and out as quickly as he could. He didn't come as some imaginary nor celestial being. He didn't come virtual. He didn't connect via podcast or Zoom. Appears a hologram mapped electronically. His coming was analog, not digital. Incarnational versus excarnational. The New Testament tells us, and this is what Matthew is telling us in this genealogy, that he took a tedious, circuitous route submitting to human nature. Participating in our sin-drenched human condition and without Sin, embracing embodiment and all of its changes of development in changes of smells and earthiness, becoming like all of us through a particular historical lineage. To what? To ground himself in human history, which is underscored in many passages. John 1.14, the word became flesh, Philippians 2, 6, and 7. He was made in human likeness to declare that becoming flesh was not beneath a transcendent God, which then causes us pause to at least ask this question. As he is connecting with us, are we connecting with him? But more than connect, here's another reason why he came in the flesh. Christ has come in the flesh to identify with our brokenness. Matthew could have scrubbed the genealogy to impress us, leave a few names in like Abraham and David, and scratch out the rest. He could have reduced it to a small snippet to withered attention spans. But you notice he didn't. Step back after reading these words and you realize God came in the flesh, not as some wealthy, powerful mover and shaker, Not some blue blood obsessed with having the right papers. He didn't come as one who separated himself from the hoi polloi. He was born into poverty in a marginalized corner of the world. He waded into the sea of sickness and disease with a bloodline filled with names whose closets seemed to be bursting with skeletons, as one writer put it. Telling us he willingly stepped into our mess, our pain, our anger, our sorrow, all the way to death. This is why Matthew has to give the genealogy. He wants to make this point. A couple of years ago, my, my wife decided to purchase a DNA test for me through 23andMe, a genomics company. Now, why she did it, I'm not sure. Maybe she ran out of Christmas ideas. Perhaps she did it to uncover my ancestry, see if the genealogy she married into was credible or filled with steamy and racy and violent stories. And I'm sure if I look deep enough, they are there. And if so, well, I'm in good company because Jesus had his share. I mean, just uh, without going too far, consider these lists. In the first one, almost everyone mentioned had messy lives. Abraham caved in and had sex with the slave. Jacob was a liar who stiffed his brother, was a dysfunctional husband, an absentee father. Judah, though singled out as a representative of the 12 tribes, slept around, was even seduced by his daughter-in-law. In this first list, Matthew intermixes four women in the genealogy, which was unheard of in a patriarchal culture. And think about who these women are, Tamar, the first woman mentioned A Canaanite who acted as a prostitute, seducing her father-in-law. Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, a reformed, immoral Gentile woman. Ruth, a Moabite low on the social and spiritual registry. And then there is this kind of cryptic wife of Uriah. Almost too hard, too difficult to mention the word Bathsheba. You know, the one in David's scandalous affair. All of these were outsiders. Each one was connected to rumors of illegitimacy. So Matthew says, okay, we'll start there. Then he moves to the second list. And these are kings. And everyone mentioned is a mess. Rehoboam led the nation of Israel into deep sin. Abijah committed all the sins of his fathers. And worse, Asa brutally oppressed the people and died with a hardened heart. Joram walked in the same evil ways as Ahab. Uzziah became so full of Pride that God smote him with leprosy. Ahaz was into idolatry that became his downfall. Manasseh bowed to idols, sacrificed his sons in the fire. Wow, what a credible list. What a a great lineage to be associated with. But Matthew's not finished. In the final list, he connects us to the exile. I should say connects Jesus to the exile, which amounted to what? A period of deep shame. Israel's unwillingness to repent led to their deportation, the loss of everything they had, land, temple, kings, and the promises of God. And Matthew says, and this was the line of Jesus, who gives new meaning to, and he came and took on our shame and sin. In his mercy, he weaved his humanity into our humanity. He came as the perfect high priest who can sympathize with our human weakness. Which leads to this question really for our lives too, and that is, are you bringing him into your pain? He has come in the flesh to enter into our lives at the deepest level. Are you allowing him in? But here's a third reason for beginning here. Christ has come in the flesh to pay the price for our failure. See, he had to come in the flesh to be the perfect sacrifice. Redemption requires incarnation. Our Redeemer had to be a man. And here Matthew removes any doubt. Jesus pays the cost of our sin with literal physical blood, becoming the perfect mediator, for he was both fully God and fully man. As one church father put it, if Christ is God as he truly is, but did not assume manhood, then we are strangers to salvation. To be born of God, God must first be born of us. Which leads to a third question for us to ponder. As we think about the incarnation and the necessity for our salvation, have you received it? Have you taken advantage of his saving work? I'm guessing we may know these reasons. May, we may understand them if we have had any time in our lives with Jesus. But I'd like to throw out one more reason we may not think about, but which may be most relevant for the age in which we live in, and that is this. Christ has come in the flesh to show, now listen carefully, to show what it means to be human. Because it seems we've forgotten The humanity of Jesus points to what true humanity looks like. It stands as a corrective to our excarnational age, where technology has enabled us to have a disembodied presence in the world. Think about it. Much of our present technology is not just shaping the world out there. It's remaking us from within. We live under a a regime of screens, that comprise much of our lives, leading both to boredom and worse, withdrawal. I mean, look around. Our age has become largely one of virtual relationships, with friends on Facebook we've never met, with worshipers who worship in a virtual church, where we listen to pastors on screens and claim we're part of a church with people we've never met, which, if you think about it, leaves us disconnected and unable to enter into one another's lives, let alone one another's pains. If it was necessary, this is the point I'm I'm making here, if it was necessary, so necessary for God to enter into our world and take on our humanity and become flesh and touch our lives, should we settle for lives that have become so defleshed? Should we accept a way of life becoming more and more disengaged, a life becoming more and more impersonal and impermanent, because this is what an excarnational existence does. And in the process, it makes us shallow and isolated and lonely and narcissistic, because we begin to more and more curve in upon ourselves, and we end up with more with a facade than with authentic community. For we can't really know one another apart from embodied reality. We can't hear the tone of one's words if we're not flesh to flesh. We can't see the facial expressions that reveal feelings. We can't watch body movements that convey distance or intimacy. We lose our humanity and our community. As so I was thinking about this as reminded in the early church there was a heresy called uh, docetism that claimed and it was really quite popular in the day it claimed a quote higher christology unquote that jesus well he would never mess with coming in the flesh and becoming our mess that would be that would be way above a transcendent god he only appeared to be human he was only spiritual but as theologians rightly came to understand, this snaps the lifeline between God and humanity. Could it be just a question that we are allowing the ancient heresy to creep back in? We, you hear it when people say, I'm into spirituality, I'm just not into church. I'm not into the messiness of people and lives because that's what church is. It's a mess. I know, I've pastored 36 years. I saw it up close. But this is the mess because we are human. We are flesh. And there, is incre- there are increasingly those who would like to say, I'll just stay above it in my spiritual cocoon. But that's exactly what the docetics believed about Jesus. Could it be that Christmas, maybe as much as any time, if we're really listening, really listening, Could it be that that the incarnation of Jesus is one of the most important truths we need to recover? That it's God calling us back to our humanity, calling us back to being incarnational as well, carrying out, hopefully, the demand of 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, be ye imitators of Christ. Maybe more than ever, Christmas stands if we're listening to a call to come back to our humanity, to be literally and physically present, to be the body of Christ, not virtual, but actual. Which leads finally to this last question. Are you determined? Are we determined? In an age that is calling us away to come back to be truly human, to live a flesh-to-flesh Christianity. Let me pray. Dear God in heaven, help us, God, in this day, in these times, in this week, to realize that we follow a Messiah who came in the flesh, who could only come in the flesh to take on our humanity, To not only save us, but to show us how we must as well live. May the church, may this church, in a very incarnational way, be the physical presence of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.